Hello, everybody. Before we start today's podcast, I wanted to let you know that I am having a spring celebration sale on my CCRN. So right now you can buy my CCRN online program for $199. There is no code needed. You can just head over to my website at khoppypresents.com or use the link that I've provided in the description. And it is already marked down to $199 in celebration of spring. This online program is worth 30 continuing education hours, 24 7 365 lifetime access, and you'll also be getting periodic updates as they're available. So I just wanted to let you know and enjoy the podcast. Have a wonderful day. Bye-bye. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 25 of the CCRN Review Series. My name is Kay Hoppy. For those of you that haven't joined me in the past, I welcome you here and I hope you enjoy uh, this podcast today. And for those of you that are back for another podcast, welcome. I am so glad to have you back. Just a couple of announcements before we get into our content for the day. One of the most exciting announcements I have is the pre-sale of my online CCRN review course. Please head over to my website at khoppypresents.com and check it out. Uh, It is a full, huge course that is going to provide you with 30 continuing education hours of learning and preparing for the CCRN exam. So without further ado, let's get into today's content. We are going to be talking about ARDS. So let's start out with a brief definition. One of my favorite people is Barbara Clark Mims, and she put out this beautiful course on ARDS that I attended many years ago. So I asked her if I could use her definition in my courses because it's very complete and very thorough. So if you ever get the opportunity to listen to her or to be able to read any of her articles, go for it because she's just really one of the best. So here's her definition of ARDS. ARDS is an acute clinical illness characterized by bilateral pulmonary infiltrates on chest x-ray. And this is key now, guys, non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema. So we have pulmonary edema related to a non-cardiac cause. So in other words, it's not heart failure and hypoxemia. It is initiated by an uncontrolled inflammatory response to a massive insult. Very commonly in critical care, that massive insult is sepsis, which uh, causes injury to the alveolar capillary unit. The end result is an increase in vascular permeability, progressive alveolar flooding and collapse, and altered surfactant activity. I think that pretty well sums it up. It's responsible for about 10% of ICU admissions and 25% of prolonged mechanical ventilation worldwide. And this comes from Paul Marino's ICU book. And really, ARDS is a diagnosis of exclusion. So we exclude other things first before we come in for a landing on ARDS. Uh, 
Now, some of the etiologies of ARDS include, as I mentioned before, sepsis, that's about 16% of the cases, pneumonia, 59.4%, aspiration, about 14.2%. Then there's trauma, shock, cardiopulmonary bypass, multiple transfusions, long bone fractures, a whole variety of things, including different drug ingestions and inhalation type injuries. Now, really, when we look at this as a step-by-step process, what we see is there's an inciting event, you know, so there's a trigger first. ARDS occurs as a result of or secondary to something else. So what we wind up seeing is we have an inflammation of the pulmonary capillary bed, the endothelium to be specific, which is the inner lining. We have neutrophils that attach to that pulmonary endothelium and they start to migrate migrate through into the parenchyma or the actual lung tissue itself. And as they do so, um, the pulmonary capillary becomes damaged and freely permeable. So we have this leakage of fluid rich in protein and formed elements initially into the parenchyma or the actual lung tissue itself, causing the patient to have increased work of breathing, but then ultimately into the alveoli and we see progressive alveolar collapse as a result. So our principal features is, you know, that we have acute hypoxic respiratory failure, bilateral diffuse pulmonary infiltrates. More than 90% of ARDS cases will develop within one week of the inciting event. And about 80% of the time, the patient will require mechanical ventilation. These patients go on to develop, and by the way, this is a hallmark of ARDS, a right to left intrapulmonary shunt which means that blood leaves the right side of the heart, gets down to the pulmonary capillary bed, does not get oxygenated because the alveoli are collapsed, and that blood volume makes its way up to the left side of the heart without ever getting oxygenated. And the way we pick this up at the bedside, guys, is we pick it up when our patient develops refractory hypoxemia. In other words, hypoxemia that is refractory to oxygen therapy. So the key point here is we're at the bedside and we're going up and up and up and up on the oxygen all the while the patient's saturation is not improving. That's called refractory hypoxemia. And refractory hypoxemia has to be treated with positive pressure. If the patient's intubated, that positive pressure is in the form of PEEP, If the patient is not intubated, that positive pressure is in the form of BiPAP. So when we talk about other clinical features, we also take a look at what's called the PF ratio, where we take the patient's PO2, divide it by the FiO2, and keep in mind that whenever you divide something by a percentage, you have to first convert it over to a decimal. So let's take you and me. Let's just say right now we have a PO2 of 96 and we are breathing room air, which has an FiO2 of 0.21 or 21%. 
So 96 divided by 0.21. What you're going to find is that for you and for me, our PF ratio is somewhere in the 400s range. Now, when patients start going into ARDS, mild ARDS is described as a PF ratio, 201 to 300, that has a mortality rate of about 27%. Moderate is a PF ratio of 101 to 200, and now the mortality rate is 32%. And then we have severe ARDS with a PF ratio that's 100 or less, and now our mortality jumps up to 45%. This information and these statistics are taken for, from, once again, Paul Marino's book. He's, I'm one of his fans. Um, and this book, the Little ICU book, was written in 2017. And it's based on the Berlin uh, criteria for ARDS. So what we see then is lung tissue, since we have the movement of fluid along with protein-informed elements into the lung, we have lung tissue that becomes very stiff and non-compliant. And that's why at one point, ARDS was actually referred to as liver lung, because when you looked at the lung tissue itself, it looked very much like liver tissue. So we have a patient then that when we assess them, they are dyspneic, they're tachypneic, they're tachycardic. Because of that right to left intrapulmonary shunt, they have refractory hypoxemia. So that's where we're going up and up and up on the oxygen all the while our patient is not improving. Patient has dry cough, chest pain in some cases, and then cyanosis, diffuse crackles may also be present. So remember, in early respiratory failure, as the patient kicks up their rate and depth of ventilation, the initial finding on the patient's ABG is going to be an acute respiratory alkalosis. If you have a patient that's having respiratory issues and they have an acute respiratory acidosis, you know they're pretty well into the respiratory failure. So the initial acid base finding is respiratory alkalosis as the patient increases their, their rate and depth of ventilation because the work of breathing has increased. So our goal really in intubating, if we get to that point and having to mechanically ventilate patients, we said that's what, about 80% of the patients with ARDS is we really want to limit the amount of distension of the lower airways during infl inflation. We want low volumes to prevent what's called volume trauma. So we want to keep the volumes low, and sometimes that causes us to retain PCO2. And so when we retain PCO2, we have a tendency to want to like jump on it and increase the volume or the rate. And then, you know, maybe we need to step back and take a look at that increasing PCO2 and ask ourselves, is it okay? Should we permit the patient to have an increase in PCO2 up into the 60s even? As long as we don't have to then increase volume, we can still protect the lungs, and that's a lung protective strategy. 
We call that permissive hypercapnia. And for most patients, that's okay. However, if you have a neurologic patient that could possibly have an increase in intracranial pressure, permissive hypercapnia is absolutely contraindicated. And the reason for that is hypercapnia causes the cerebral vascular bed to vasodilate. And of course, when the cerebral vascular bed vasodilates, you're going to have an increased amount of volume of blood coming up to the head, which will increase the pressure inside the head. So remember, for most patients, permissive hypercapnia is an okay thing, except for somebody with a neurologic issue in which they could potentially have increased ICP, like the the stroke or the head injured patient as an example. I think this would probably be a good time to mention once again, if you want to have a more in-depth discussion about these topics as we go through the podcasts, please head over to my website, khoppypresents.com and click on my online CCRN review and review all of the things that are listed as content there. 30 continuing education hours. I currently have it as as a pre-sale price of $249. Head over there and take a look at it. It's a real bargain for 30 continuing education hours. So let's head back to mechanical ventilation. And let's talk about PEEP. We know that we cannot treat a right to left intrapulmonary shunt with just oxygen alone. And in fact, that's how we identified that the patient has a right to left intrapulmonary shunt is because we're going up and up and up on the FiO2 and our patient's just not getting better. And so we have to incorporate positive pressure in order to increase functional residual capacity in the alveoli. And functional residual capacity is uh, the amount of air that is remaining in an alveolus at the end of exhalation. And that helps to prevent the alveoli from collapsing. So we use PEEP for a couple of reasons. Yes, we want to increase functional residual capacity. That's a good thing. And we also want to prevent the need for high levels of FiO2, which is defined as an FiO2 of 60% or greater. And, you know, patients that have to be on high levels of FiO2 will wind up with nitrogen washout. And nitrogen is so important to keep in the alveoli. In fact, if we were to look in your alveoli and mine, we would find that they are chalked full of nitrogen. It's the most prevalent gas, predominant gas in our alveoli. And nitrogen is so important. That's what most of our air is made up of. And the thing about nitrogen is it stimulates those type 2 alveolar cells to put out surfactant. And we all know surfactant is super important to keep the alveoli from collapsing. Another thing that we have to keep in mind is that whenever we um, start going up on the PEEP, like anything eight centimeters of PEEP or more, we start to see the impact on cardiac output. So there's a decrease in venous return when we start going up on the PEEP. 
And the way that we have to combat this, of course, is perhaps a fluid challenge or a fluid challenge followed by an increase in baseline uh, IV rate or hourly IV rate. Because obviously, if something's causing a decrease in venous return, we have to bolster that up a little bit. Turning off the PEEP or turning down the PEEP is really not going to help the patient in the long haul. So what about fluid? What about fluid? Well, you know, we don't want to have this big, huge positive pressure balance or positive fluid balance, excuse me. So initially you'll find yourself with ARDS giving more fluid early on and then a lesser amount of fluid later. And we should have some really defined goals as to what we're going to use to determine our filling pressures and where we want to be. Are we trending CVP, for example? Where do we want that to be? If the patient's tubed and on a ventilator, as a general rule, the CVP needs to be a little bit higher than the patient that's breathing spontaneously. And then we have to remember that there's always furosemide if the patient has too much fluid on board. Steroids, well, methylprednisolone can be used early in the management of moderate to severe ARDS. And, you know, we know that steroids have an anti-inflammatory function. And the thought about steroids is that maybe if we start steroids, we can prevent the formation of an irreversible pulmonary fibrosis that really kind of kicks in day seven and beyond that will cause the patient to have a restrictive pulmonary disease for the rest of their life. So again, um, steroids may be employed. Sedation and analgesia. We want to make sure that the analgesia is on board when we give sedation. I know in critical care, it's such an easy thing to just grab sedation and when the patient starts getting edgy, but remember the analgesia is so important. There's so many studies that have looked at the fact that we overuse sedation and underuse analgesia. What kinds of things do we use? Of course, um, benzodiazepines we use, although delirium is always a problem with, or a potential problem with benzodiazepines. So thank goodness we have other drugs that we can use like dexmedetomidine or Presidex. Uh, For pain, we're looking probably at the opiate family. So fentanyl is very common, morphine or fentanyl. Uh, Also for sedation, we have propofol. So propofol for sedation, fentanyl for pain or analgesia, I should say is a very common combination. Neuromuscular blocking agents, the most important clinical application of a neuromuscular blocking agent or paralytic, let's just call it what it is, is to help the patient to stay synchronous with the vent. Because when your patient is synchronous with the vent, you can improve oxygenation. If the patient is not synchronous with the vent, Uh, oxygenation is really going to be compromised. So indications for paralytics would be, you know, somebody that has poor chest wall compliance, poor gas exchange, increased ICP, need to decrease O2 consumption, facilitating procedures, 
and then to eliminate shivering. Those are some of the common indications that we use a paralytic in critical care. The best thing, of course, is to try and stay away from them. But when you need to use them, that's really what you need. And keep in mind, you have to have the analgesia and the sedation on board before you hit the patient up with paralytic. So some of the commonly used um, paralytics include succinylcholine, rocuronium, cisatracurium. Those are the probably some of the most popular ones, vecuronium and atracurium. When we talk about using succinylcholine, that's the one I really want to isolate out. Keep in mind that when you're about to push sucks, you should have a really good idea as to what the patient's potassium level is because that push of succinylcholine will cause potassium to move from intracellular to extracellular. And now you've got this big surge of potassium, which could conceivably cause your patient to go asystolic. Prone positioning. Prone positioning is another way that we um, try to treat patients that have ARDS. We used it a ton, did we not? Or do we not in COVID patients? And the main benefit is that it increases blood flow anteriorly to better aerate the lung regions And it also, by moving mediastinal contents ventrally, it allows more room for the left lung to expand. And it can improve survival if started within 48 hours. And so it's important that once that refractory hypoxemia gets underway, that we get the prone positioning underway as well. It's not Um, it's not applicable for everybody. So if you had an unstable spine fracture, you would not be doing that. Relative contraindications, the patient with pelvic fractures, recent facial trauma, uh, increased ICP, hemodynamic instability, and massive uh, hemoptysis. Those would be some relative contraindications. So you'd have to take it as a case-by-case kind of situation. Treating the pulmonary hypertension, well, you know, um, ECMO is used to take the blood volume and uh, shunt it outside of the body, body or externally to an external oxygenator and then delivering it back to the patient. Um, That is a way of treating oxygenation. We also have specific drugs that are targeted to treat the pulmonary hypertension. Flolan and Velitri are a couple of examples of that. Keep in mind that what causes one of the contributing factors to the pulmonary hypertension is inadequate oxygen and the hypoxia causes pulmonary vasoconstriction. Nutritional support, also very important in these patients. Uh, One of the things that differentiates pulmonary patients from other patients in terms of what we would what we would choose for tube feeds, we would definitely choose something that is low in carbohydrate for patients with pulmonary issues. So if you were to line up some of the tube feeds that you use, you would notice that Pulmacare compared to some of the others is very low in carbohydrate. And that's simply because we know that carbon... Uh, carbohydrates will ultimate, 
ultimately increase carbon dioxide production. So guys, this is the end of podcast episode 25 of our CCRN review on ARDS. When you have a moment, head on over to my website. There is a link to my website in the description. It's khoppypresents.com. And there you'll find information on my pre-sale for the online CCRN review program. Thanks so much for your time, guys, and have a blessed day. Bye-bye.